My name is Tom, and welcome to the fifth episode of the History Matters podcast. The aim of these podcasts is to go into some depth on various mostly modern historical issues, with a particular emphasis on military and diplomatic history. Hopefully, that sounds of some interest to you. And in this episode of History Matters, we are going to be turning our attention to one of the permanent neutrals, Switzerland. We will be taking a look at Swiss neutrality from roughly the start of the 19th century, and then proceeding up to the end of the First World War. I'll save the interwar and Second World War periods for next week, as there is already quite a lot to get through. As ever, there are a few works I would love to recommend to you. Firstly, the chapter by Samuel Kruzinga, simply called Neutrality, from the second volume of the Cambridge History of the First World War, and also Leo Schelbert's amazingly comprehensive Historical Dictionary of Switzerland, uh, now in its second edition from 2013, although I think both of these were actually published in the same year. Both of these resources were absolutely great, and I would definitely recommend checking them out if you have the time. I would also just say that definitely when I was looking over the topic of Switzerland, there seemed to be a great deal more written about the interwar and definitely the Second World War periods than the, the time prior to that, at least in the English language historiography. It was a little bit frustrating, but you have to make do with what you can get your hands on. Okay, so let's get started with a little bit of the Swiss National Anthem, which, as is often the case, has its own interesting history. What you are about to hear part of is actually the former de facto national anthem, which was replaced in 1981. The older anthem was written in 1811, with German lyrics, and was then given alternative French lyrics in 1857, and then Italian lyrics even later than that. That fact alone perhaps should tell you something about the ethnic demography and power relations in Switzerland. Anyway, the song is Rufst du mein Vaterland, and the tune should be immediately recognisable to you. enough of that, let's start now with Switzerland at the end of the Napoleonic War. Switzerland was repeatedly invaded throughout the conflict, and had been set up essentially as a French client state. To avoid a similar situation in the future, the participants at the post-war Congress of Vienna, Great Britain, France, Austria, Prussia and Russia, obtained the permanent neutralisation of Switzerland. They acknowledged the neutrality and inviolability of Switzerland and of its independence from all foreign influences as being in the true political interests of the whole of Europe, a position that was later reaffirmed in 1919 in the Treaty of Versailles. Two months later, the treaty was ratified at a special meeting of the Swiss Legislative and Executive Council, which specifically recorded its gratitude to the signatories for recognising and guaranteeing this newly acquired perpetual neutral status. This meant Switzerland was to be the very first in a new kind of state, those whose neutrality would be prescribed and guaranteed with the agreement of the European great powers of the time. Essentially, its foreign policy was to be dictated to it. Swiss neutrality was guaranteed as a check 
against the possibility of renewed French aggression during the 19th century. The same logic would also later apply to the Kingdom of Belgium, another French border state, when it became independent later on. Neutrality was seen to be particularly fitting to the Swiss, as even prior to the Napoleonic War, neutrality had already been generally observed in practice, usually to preserve the unity of a League of Independent Swiss Cantons, which differed in language, culture, and after the 1520s, in religion also. As partial compensation for this enforced neutrality, Switzerland was given three new cantons, which turned out to be the last major territorial expansion in its history. Yet, no sooner had the new neutral status been confirmed, than many Swiss began to doubt whether enforced neutrality was such a good idea after all. Had the Swiss, by accepting a guaranteed and perpetual neutrality, not surrendered a part of their sovereignty? In other words, could the Swiss still give up their neutrality if that was felt to be in the country's interest, without the consent of the guarantors? From this point onward, there would always be influential members of Swiss society that would feel somewhat aggrieved by this enforced neutrality, as they wished for greater political and military room for manoeuvre. In that sense, senior Swiss military and political figures did differ from some of the other smaller European neutrals, especially the Netherlands, as some were still very open to the idea of expanding the Swiss Confederacy. Unlike the Netherlands, with its empire in Southeast Asia, Switzerland had no imperial holdings of its own, on which to focus the expansionist ambitions of certain sections of its society. Switzerland was to maintain this neutral status throughout the 19th century, despite multiple internal upheavals, including a civil war in 1847, which saw the last major battle ever to be fought on Swiss soil. This conflict, the so-called Sonderbund war, established Switzerland as a federal state, and is significant regarding neutrality, as prior to this, the old Swiss cantons still had the ability to conduct their own foreign policy and field their own armies, and thus compromise overall Swiss neutrality. The new constitution, which resulted from the war, provided for the canton's sovereignty, as long as this did not impinge on the new federal constitution, which gave the new federal council the sole right to represent Switzerland abroad. With the cantons now reined in, the new Swiss confederation was able to actually guarantee the full neutrality of its territory in the event of a European war. Yet Switzerland was never very consistent in how it handled neutrality in the 19th century. During the Austro-Prussian War of 1866, Switzerland did not issue a proclamation of neutrality at all, with the Swiss Federal Council, Switzerland's executive branch, arguing that this was not necessary as Swiss neutrality was simply a given and could be assumed by the belligerents. However, only four years later, during the Franco-Prussian War, the Federal Council suddenly decided that such a declaration was necessary. Bizarrely, after the Prussian victory in 1871, the Swiss government then hoped to share in the spoils by annexing the southern part of French Alsace, in what was euphemistically called a border adjustment. The Swiss were unsuccessful, however, as the German Chancellor, Bismarck, was determined to annex the whole of the province to the newly formed German state, and curtly told the Swiss representative that neutral states had no business annexing territory. This was to be a continuing theme in certain Swiss foreign policy circles, looking to expand during any future Franco-German armed conflict. In 1907, the head of the Swiss military department, Ludwig Forer, responded to a report by the Swiss chief of the general staff, Theopil Spreker. The report contained war scenarios which detailed possible future French troop movements through Switzerland in the event of a war with Germany. If this did occur, then Forer wished, after what he regarded as a probable French defeat, 
to make an all-out effort to acquire territories to the south and northwest of Geneva in compensation. All of these territorial ambitions were based on a reinterpretation of neutrality in the latter part of the 19th century, with many leading Swiss arguing that the adoption of a state of perpetual neutrality had in no way been imposed by the major European powers, but had instead been a fully sovereign decision entered into by Switzerland in 1815. This interpretation would obviously mean that it was entitled to give up its neutral status if it felt it was no longer in Switzerland's wider interest. To these people, Swiss neutrality was therefore an expression of the unique character of the state and the will of its people, and not based on international law. This led to a certain ambiguity with Swiss neutrality, with a mindset developing that neutrality could be thrown off if the situation demanded it, but, at the same time, never taking any active steps to rescind the 1815 treaty and using it as a kind of international legal safety net. This attitude towards neutrality was exemplified by instructions issued to Swiss military commanders by the head of the Federal Council before the First World War, and here I quote directly from these instructions. For even though we tend to be of the opinion that our neutrality is entirely based on our own decision, and that there are no international agreements that compel us to acknowledge this neutrality as a servitude imposed on our federal state, so we cannot deny that there are circumstances thinkable in which our country's interest could verge to the other extreme, that we would want to appeal to our neutrality being guaranteed by the signatories to the Treaty of 20th of November, 1815. End of quotation. So there you have neutrality as a useful tool, both as a safety net if necessary, and as a cloak with which opportunistic Swiss aspirations could be hidden. Swiss military figures also maintained much closer contacts with their Franco-German counterparts than was usual in other European neutrals during the 19th century. In 1889, the Swiss chief of staff attended army manoeuvres in France, during which he directly discussed the new threat posed to both of them by the new Triple Alliance of Germany, Austria-Hungary and Italy. He also informed his French counterpart of plans for a Swiss attack on Milan, should Italy violate its neutrality. Italy, founded in 1861, had always been of special concern to Switzerland, as the new nation was not one of the original 1815 signatories, and therefore had no historical obligation towards Switzerland. Many Swiss worried that the existence of an Italian-majority-speaking canton, mostly south of the defensive Alps, would prove too tempting to the new, territorially ambitious Italian kingdom. Speaking of the Alps, it will probably be wise to say a few words about Swiss geography, as it does have major implications on the viability of Swiss arm neutrality. The geography of Switzerland is, to say the least, uncontestedly different to that of our previous nation under discussion, the Netherlands. Switzerland contains the highest system of mountains in Western Europe, the Swiss Alps, which contains numerous peaks of over 4,000 metres above sea level. This mountain range makes up around 60% of all Swiss territory, meaning for a smaller European neutral power, Switzerland possesses some clearly excellent defensive territory. And, much as the Dutch often like to sometimes link their neutral status to the stewardship of the mouths of three major rivers, the Swiss were to link their neutrality to the guardianship of the vital mountain passes that link central and southern Europe. The other main areas of Switzerland are the plateau, around 30% of Switzerland, and the Euro mountain range, running mostly along the French border and taking up the remaining 10%. Both of the mountain ranges have always been relatively sparsely populated, with the bulk of the Swiss population living on the plateau region, particularly in the three major cities of Geneva, Zurich and Bern. 
as well as the majority of the population, this central region has always housed the overwhelming majority of Switzerland's industry, manufacturing and agricultural output. Also unlike the Netherlands, Switzerland is famously landlocked, its nearest coastline along the Gulf of Genoa being over 160 kilometers away from its southern borders. As we will see, this will have implications in terms of the Swiss ability to import goods and to maintain a functioning economy as a neutral during times of general European conflict. This generally excellent Swiss defensive geography was to be enhanced in the 1880s with the beginning of what became known as the National Redoubt. This was to become a whole series of fortifications built in the Alps region to both secure the strategically vital Alpine passes, as well as to provide a potential refuge for the Swiss army if it was unable to defend the economically vital plateau region to the north. The Swiss made full use of the terrain, often mining and tunnelling deep into the steep mountainsides to create impressive casements and bunker systems. In contrast with the Dutch National Redoubt, which as seen in the previous podcast was centred around the populous provinces of North and South Holland, the Swiss National Redoubt did not include any of the country's major population or economic centres. The National Redoubt was focused on three major fortress complexes at St. Maurice, St. Cotard and Sargans. It was these ultimate fallback positions that were designed to be almost impregnable and to deny the use of the economically and strategically vital Alpine passes to any would-be invader, especially the use of the Gotthard rail line which had opened with the assistance of German and Italian investment in 1882. The Swiss general staff would constantly worry that these newly constructed international railway lines were too much of a strategic vulnerability to be allowed to linger in the hands of an unreliable neutral power, hence why such attempts were made to fortify them during the latter part of the 19th century. August 1st of 1914 saw the Swiss celebrating their national holiday, but, less fortuitously, it was also the day Germany declared war on Russia and France began mobilisation for the Great War. On August 2nd, the Swiss Federal Council declared Switzerland's neutrality, and the next day also approved the mobilisation of troops and elected a chief commander of the army. In times of peace, the Swiss army has no officer higher than that of a corps commandant, it is only in times of war that a senior commander is elected by the Swiss government and then oversees any potential field operations. In this case, the successful candidate was a man named Ulrich Villa. On the same date of mobilisation, the main Swiss legislative body, the Federal Assembly, handed unrestricted authority and unlimited credit to the executive, the Federal Council. According to Swiss Federal Councillor Ludwig Forer, this extra-constitutional emergency law, later described as a plenipotentiary regime, gave the Swiss executive special dictatorial powers that effectively ended real parliamentary control. In some respects, Swiss political leaders possessed greater executive powers than many belligerent states like Britain and France, as they also possessed effective immunity from any legal challenge by the Swiss Federal Supreme Court. In theory, during the war, the Swiss constitution remained in force, 
but was now de facto replaced by the growing statutes of emergency law issued by the Federal Council, and from 1914 to 1919, the Council would rule by issuing over 1,600 emergency decrees. Initially, these would regulate only the military sphere, including censorship, but from 1916 onwards, they also increasingly affected the economic and social spheres. It was initially felt that the war would be of short duration, probably between five weeks and a maximum of six months, which was good, as Switzerland only had bread stocks to last 60 days. Neutral Switzerland, having no sea access of its own, had the potential to be particularly vulnerable to any embargo restrictions placed on it by the belligerents, and in 1914, Switzerland did not possess even a single expert on international maritime blockade or contraband law. During the period of initial Italian neutrality, this was less of a concern, but after Italy's entry into the war on the side of the Entente powers in May of 1915, Switzerland became fully surrounded by warring belligerents. All these warring states would seek to exert control over the Swiss economy during the conflict. Most worryingly for the Swiss was the fact that foreign trade in 1913, both import and export, accounted for 60% of its gross domestic product, with a particularly heavy reliance on foreign trade conducted with Germany. Many Swiss military and political decision-makers were not unduly concerned at these bleak economic prospects, as they believed they would probably end up entering the conflict at some point anyway, as by then neutrality was seen as a flexible concept. General Villa called for Switzerland to participate in hostilities on several occasions, and on 20th of July 1915, he wrote a sabre-rattling letter to the Swiss Federal Councillor, Arthur Hoffman, stating that he regarded the current moment as advantageous for entering the war, if it is required to maintain our autonomy and independence. The belligerent powers quickly sought to rein in the rights of neutral powers like Switzerland by trying to get them to commit to something like the Dutch arrangement, whereby the neutrals would delegate control of their imports to a jointly controlled private body. The Swiss government was certainly willing to entertain such a suggestion, but demanded a greater level of oversight than its Dutch counterpart, for fear that Allied pressure on a private company would cause it to favour French-speaking Swiss over their German-speaking counterparts. In October of 1915, a joint body was finally set up, called the Société Suisse de Surveillance Économique, or SSS. Imperial Germany likewise sought to regulate the Swiss economy by means of an organisation set up in the summer of 1915, the Treuhand Zurich. Faced with this combined level of economic control, Swiss Federal Councillor Hoffmann declared that Switzerland had only three options for responding to these imposed economic restrictions. To starve, to fight, or to submit. And so the Swiss government submitted. The legal right to free trade granted to neutrals by the Hague Conventions and the London Declaration of 1909 had proved to mean little during times of war. The Swiss people were themselves keenly aware of their loss of sovereignty during the war and took to calling the SSS the Souveraineté Suisse Suspendue, or Swiss Sovereignty Suspended. In terms of their relation to the economy, by the First World War, the Swiss had cultivated an image of rural alpine farmers, especially dairy farming. Yet the reality was that by any international comparison, Switzerland was a highly industrial nation, and one that could no longer feed itself. By 1910, the manufacturing and industrial sector accounted for 44% of the Swiss gross domestic product. Agriculture had by that point declined to less than 20%. The Swiss economy possessed particular strengths in metal and machine industries, as well as the chemical sector, 
its famous watchmaking industry proved to be particularly valuable in producing time detonators and precision detonators for shrapnel grenades and artillery shells, of which there was a major shortage in France and Britain. This relatively significant industrial capability would prove crucial in its dealings with the belligerents, as the Swiss were able to use it as negotiating leverage to prevent their economy being effectively taken over by one side or the other. In return for coal and iron, which Switzerland almost completely lacked, the Swiss could promise industrial goods related to armaments to either side. The flip side was that the belligerents, especially the Western Allies, could threaten to withhold grain supplies to take advantage of Switzerland's lack of agricultural self-sufficiency. In 1915, the Allies even went so far as to enforce a monopoly on Swiss grain imports, and they also used a mix of import quotas, exemption permits, confiscations, import control requirements, administrative delays, and other bureaucratic machinations to influence the Swiss economy. Yet compared to the situation in the Netherlands, the belligerents were never quite able to dominate the Swiss economy so comprehensively. Quite simply, Swiss industrial commodities were a much stronger bargaining chip than the largely agricultural products that the Netherlands exported. In comparison to the Netherlands, a Dutch shipowner, Ernst Heldring, regretfully wrote in his memoirs in 1916 that, and I quote, at present, Switzerland is economically speaking in a much better position than we are. Swiss industry is permitted to supply Germany with certain goods, even though it uses raw materials supplied by the Entente nations. We have not achieved a similar advantage for our own industry, and both the Allies and the Central Powers are better disposed towards them than towards us, because it resisted economic restrictions from both sides. It too had to give in, but it achieved more. End of quotation. Initially, the Swiss government had hoped to profit from the direct sale of munitions to the belligerents, but soon after war broke out, it was forced to ban the export of munitions, and instead Swiss companies took over the large-scale export of militarily relevant goods, such as munitions components, but not actual completed munitions. These Swiss companies had to be careful, however, if they were caught selling to the other side, they risked being completely blacklisted. Although the export of weapons, munitions and war materials to the neighbouring warring states had been banned as early as August of 1914, the export of separate weapons components was not explicitly prohibited and the belligerents were soon placing huge orders. It became common practice for these munitions components to pass through customs labelled as brass pieces, castings, wrought iron tubes, screws or under any other designation that sounded harmless. By February of 1917, the Federal Council was forced to conclude that a huge part of a native Swiss engineering industry had effectively become a war industry in its own right, and that both sides were currently placing enormous orders in Switzerland. This massive demand for weapons components meant that by the spring of 1915, the Swiss economy was booming, despite the increasingly wide-ranging control measures and the establishment of surveillance companies imposed by the belligerents. To put this industrial boom into some sort of perspective, it is estimated that the export volumes of forged iron products from Switzerland quadrupled, machine tools increased sevenfold, and volumes of copper products rose more than twelvefold. The Swiss army was even partly demobilised to feed this demand for new workers, and indeed the number of men-at-arms by the end of 1914 in the Swiss army had dropped by half. The concept of armed neutrality was not being taken as seriously as it had been in the Netherlands, and economic considerations were allowed to overrule any political or military implications for neutrality. But it was not only the heavier industrial sectors of the Swiss economy that had prospered during the war. 
the Swiss banking and insurance sectors were able to expand considerably as the belligerents desperately sought new lines of credit with which to finance their prodigious war expenditure. The flow of foreign assets to Switzerland and the collapse of foreign currencies also served to greatly accelerate Switzerland's position as an international finance centre. Switzerland became especially valuable to Germany during the war as a source of loans, due to Britain and France extending their control over telegraphic communication, censoring telegraphic transactions and monopolising the large New York money market. The Swiss National Bank even took to calling itself a war bank, or Kriegsbank, in line with the central banks of the European belligerents. All this was not an unalloyed good for the Swiss, as regards their neutrality, however, as it meant that the Swiss came to be regarded as the archetype of a duplicitous neutral war profiteer, seemingly feathering its own nest from the misery raging around it. Between 1915 and 1920, the Swiss authorities recorded taxable war profits of some 2.4 billion Swiss francs, a small fortune at the time. This certainly damaged the value of Swiss neutrality in the eyes of all the belligerents, and these accusations of war profiteering would also come to the fore with even greater force, both during and after the Second World War. One particularly controversial issue was the acceptance by the Swiss National Bank of cheaply acquired large quantities of silver that had been looted from Belgian banks by German forces in 1914. As the odds of a German victory grew slim in late 1918, the Swiss National Bank tried to cover its tracks by smelting the stolen Belgian silver into bars and re-exporting them at great profit over the border into France. However, unlike with the more famous example of Nazi gold in Switzerland during the Second World War, in this instance, the Swiss were able to keep this activity from tarnishing their neutral shield, and there was no great recrimination from the Western belligerents. Swiss neutrality was, in part, also supposed to be based on a commitment to humanitarian values, but this clashed awkwardly with the massive munition component deliveries that were effectively condoned by the Swiss state. Although the export of war material was legal under international law, it became increasingly difficult to justify, given the ethical value of neutrality the Swiss government was always proclaiming. Swiss workers were themselves aware of this contradiction, and in November of 1917, there were large-scale pacifist demonstrations against the production of munitions in Zurich, leaving three workers and a policeman dead. It is worth looking briefly at the Swiss army during the First World War, even though the Swiss government was not hugely convinced of the army's deterrent value. Upon the outbreak of the First World War, the Swiss had some 220,000 soldiers available, in addition to well over 200,000 territorial reserves, a total of some 450,000 men, drawn from a population of only around 3.5 million in 1914, and these men were allocated to eight divisions. Just as we saw with the Netherlands, armed neutrality was definitely not a cheap option to maintain, Indeed, per capita defence spending in Switzerland actually remained close to the European average. Amazingly, the only previous full-time Swiss soldiers had been 240 officer instructors. The rest were all conscripts, pulled from the huge pool of the Swiss militia force, the Landsturm. Famously, every Swiss man kept his rifle at home, as is still done today, and carried it with him to his mobilisation point. German military planners had originally been open to the idea of outflanking French border fortifications by going through Switzerland instead of Belgium, but were turned off this idea by the mountainous topography of Switzerland 
and a probably exaggerated respect for the fighting capability of the Swiss army versus the Belgian, based on its supposedly Germanic character, compared to the more heavily French-influenced Royal Belgian Army. Once military operations settled down in the West, and the threat of invasion receded by the winter of 1914, the Swiss army was then systematically reduced in size. By November of 1916, the Swiss had only 38,000 men in the army, the rest demobilised to fuel the booming ersatz war industries. This was only ever temporarily increased back up to 100,000 men over the winter of 1916-17, due to a war scare involving fears of France sending 30 divisions over its border to advance into southern Germany. Once this scare had passed, the Swiss army dwindled again, until by November of 1918, only 12,500 men remained mobilised. Once again, the stark contrast with the situation in the Netherlands must be noted. The Dutch insisted on maintaining armed neutrality all the way through the war, with a permanently mobilised army, even at times when the threat of war appeared negligible. Now let's turn some attention onto the ethnic tensions in Switzerland, and their implications on Swiss neutrality. In contrast with many of the other European neutrals in this period, Switzerland was, and still is, famously demographically divided, with a German-speaking majority around 60% of the Swiss population, and a significantly smaller French-speaking minority in the West, composing around 20%. This division had caused few, if any, major problems in peacetime, but as soon as the war broke out, a conflict of loyalties arose, which soon became known as the Kraben, or Le Fosse, the Rift. The problem lay in the threefold superiority of numbers possessed by the German-speaking Swiss, as this demographic superiority translated into a majority of seats on the small Swiss Federal Council, of which only a single member out of seven was French-speaking. The vast majority of Swiss staff officers were also German-speaking, which fed the suspicion, especially in West Switzerland, that the top brass were distinctly pro-German, and throughout the whole of the war, both of the two top jobs in the Swiss army were held by German-speaking officers. French-speaking Swiss were always worried that the Swiss government was dominated too far by German speakers and successfully motioned for the Federal Council to start accounting for its political and administrative decision-making in regular so-called neutrality reports. There were a number of high-profile incidents throughout the war that inflamed these ethno-linguistic tensions in Switzerland, as well as casting doubt on the Swiss commitment to genuine neutrality. In 1915, for instance, it emerged that the German and Austrian military attachés were being given the Swiss General Staff's intelligence bulletin. Not long after, another scandal broke when the editor of a French-language newspaper was jailed for offering critical commentary on German-Swiss militarism. The Federal Council was unfortunately well aware that both Germany and France had purchased Swiss newspapers, coerced Swiss publishing companies, and had set up news agencies, and were also mounting public exhibitions to disseminate their war aims. The Federal Council felt that it had little choice but to enforce censorship of the press, even banning some newspapers, and in mid-1915 it issued a directive on insults against foreign peoples, heads of states or governments. However, perhaps the greatest scandal of the war was yet to come, and it became known as the Oberston Affair, or the Colonel's Affair. This scandal bore out many of the French-speaking suspicions about the pro-German sympathies that were prevalent in the Swiss government, and also called into question Switzerland's supposedly neutral status. In January of 1916, it emerged that two officers in the Swiss intelligence service had, for some time, been passing on information about French and Russian troop movements to military attachés in Berlin and Vienna. When he learned about this, the Swiss commander Villa 
simply transferred the two officers to command posts in an attempt to hush up the affair. It should be noted at this point that General Villa was a German speaker who spoke no French, was a great believer in the Prussian military system, and was also related by marriage to the Bismarck family. This meant he was already strongly disliked as a choice of commander by the French-speaking Swiss. When this scandal leaked in the French-speaking cantons, there was an immediate public outcry. The lenient response was deemed totally inadequate and a serious breach of Swiss neutrality. To make things worse, when the only French-speaking member of the Federal Council confronted his colleagues, it emerged that many of them were already well aware of what had happened and had already approved the measures taken by General Villa. The matter could no longer be made to go away, as French and British representatives had been made aware of it, and so the entire case had to go in front of a military court. The two defendants were represented at trial by the German-speaking Swiss Chief of Staff, Theophil Spreker, who stated that, once the two officers had perhaps gone against the strict requirements of neutrality as issued by the Swiss government, this was not necessarily hugely important. Spreker observed that, as a neutral state, Switzerland had certain rights, but these rights were restricted or ignored whenever it suited the belligerents. He also said that neutral states have certain obligations, but these too were not always to be taken too seriously. As an example, he mentioned the export of arms, munitions and war material, which, according to the government's neutrality instructions, was prohibited, yet everybody knew that it had been taking place, and on a large scale. At the end of his defence, Spraker went on to say, and I quote, Therefore I believe, as on the one hand we have to accept that our rights as a neutral are violated, and restricted whenever it suits the belligerents, we also need not to be too obsequious and strict in the observation of our duties. End of quotation. This was all really quite remarkable, as one of the two most senior officers in the Swiss army was, in effect, stating that Switzerland had regularly failed to fulfil its obligations as a neutral state, and that it was perfectly justified in its failing to do so. In the end, both officers were found not guilty and stayed in service, while Spreker himself was never disciplined for publicly throwing Swiss neutrality under a bus. But what the entire affair had done was expose the careless attitude towards neutrality possessed by many in the top echelons of the Swiss army. It is difficult to imagine the Dutch military leadership making the same mistake, as they saw it as imperative that the actions of a neutral state's army should stay closely in step with its own government's policies. Following on from this, there was also a second major blow that rocked the status of Swiss neutrality, a scandal that has become known as the Grimm-Hoffmann affair. In May of 1917, a Swiss socialist politician travelled to Russia in the throes of its first revolution, and, deeply unwisely, he began to try and mediate between Russian and German representatives in an attempt to broker a separate peace between the two sides. This action was also unofficially supported by the member of the Swiss Council responsible for foreign affairs, Arthur Hoffmann. The whole affair leaked out when a telegram sent to the Swiss embassy in St. Petersburg was intercepted by the French and then published in a Swedish newspaper. Hoffmann attempted to defend himself by saying that in brokering peace, he was acting in the wider interests of Swiss neutrality. Although perhaps being sincere in his efforts, he was also being woefully naive, as, clearly, a separate peace would, and eventually, of course, did, free up huge numbers of German divisions for deployment on the Western Front. Switzerland would thus have actively contributed to a strategic development that could potentially have won the war for Germany in the West before the arrival of any substantial American units in Europe. 
In the end, Grimm was replaced by a French-speaking Swiss from Geneva, a man named Gustave Ador, which was celebrated as a rare victory over the German-speaking majority. Ador had also been president of the International Red Cross Committee since 1910, which helped to paper over the cracks in Swiss neutrality that had been caused by the affair, as the organisation's total commitment to neutrality and humanitarian efforts were beyond reproach. Much like the Dutch, the Swiss government was also keen during the war to prop up its reputation as a useful neutral by engaging in humanitarian activities. Humanitarian concerns and neutrality went hand in hand in Switzerland's idealised self-image. Unlike the Swiss banking and industrial sectors, its tourist industry had been completely devastated by the war, with over 3,500 hotels and lodges and 168,000 potential guest beds laying empty. Partly out of economic concern, and partly out of concern for its reputation as a humanitarian neutral, the Swiss government agreed to host 68,000 British, French and German wounded prisoners of war for recovery in its mountain resorts. The injured soldiers were transferred from prisoner of war camps unable to cope with the numbers of wounded and sat out the war in comparative luxury in various idyllic locations in Switzerland. Swiss neutrality also benefited from the activities of the International Committee of the Red Cross, based in Geneva, which had been founded as a guarantor of international humanitarian law. The organisation was even awarded the only Nobel Peace Prize of the entire war in 1917. As the Red Cross always worked in close cooperation with the Swiss authorities, Switzerland was to some extent implied as a co-recipient of the award. Both the Swiss and Danish governments also inspected prisoner of war camps in Eastern Europe and aided Red Cross workers there, and the federal government assumed some responsibility for the repatriation of evacuees, treatment of sick refugees, exchange of interned civilians, missing persons investigations and provision of welfare for war orphans, as well as prisoner correspondence. So, to sum up for this week, it seems that Swiss political leaders were more willing than their counterparts in other small neutrals to consider a future beyond neutrality. This is perhaps surprising to us now when Switzerland, alongside maybe Sweden, are seen as being the ultimate neutrals in Europe. During the First World War at least, neutrality for the Swiss was just one of the many diplomatic weapons in their armoury, and a future ally to Germany or France were both possibilities, and even the idea of some small territorial expansion was not completely off the table if events allowed it. As we have already seen, this was completely different to the Dutch conception of neutrality, which was truly a higher end in and of itself. Perhaps this is because, in a sense, Swiss neutrality was taken for granted by the belligerents. Unlike some of the other neutrals, Switzerland was a permanent neutral, and the longest standing neutral power in the world. To be Swiss was already synonymous with being neutral by 1914. It was not an elected political choice like in the Netherlands. This goes some way to explaining the careless actions of so many Swiss government and army figures during the war years. There was already a tacit belief that fundamentally Swiss neutrality could not be questioned. Okay, that's all for this week. If you have any questions about this episode or just want to get in touch, then my email is historytompod at gmail.com. I'm also still more than happy to provide any further reading suggestions for the issue covered in this podcast. Next time, we will be continuing to look at Switzerland, picking up where we left off at the end of the First World War, 
and continuing on through the interwar period and up to the end of the Second World War. Possibly, I might even go beyond that, as unlike many other European neutrals, Switzerland remained neutral after the Second World War, and certainly didn't join NATO, or even the UN, I think, until about 2002, so it might well be worth continuing on. I'll have to have a think about that one. Anyway, however I end up approaching the topic, I do hope that you can join me. So thank you very much for listening, and until next time. Yeah.